the chaotic vote for Atlanta's public safety center. The vote is 11 yeas, 4 nays. The motion to adopt as amended carries. I don't think chaos is an understatement there. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Patricia, we've been together a lot today. We were at a Kiwanis Club downtown, and now we're sitting very far from each other across from a conference room table <laughs> after a big AJC meeting at the Jim Kennedy Conference Center in downtown Dumwoody. It's true. We are sitting at a conference table that's probably 40 feet long, and we've been joking that it's like the Putin's Thanksgiving because you have Vladimir Putin at one end, and then anybody else who's allowed to be in the room is a good 40 feet away from him. But that's his brand of hospitality. So here we are in the same room again, Greg. It's been 10 minutes. (laughs) Coming up on today's episode, we are joined by AJC City Hall reporter Riley Bunch about how the Public Safety Center votes will follow lawmakers, particularly Mayor Andre Dickens, when he runs for another term, and what's next over the debate on that project. And also, we'll discuss how the gloves are off between Governor Brian Kemp and former President Donald Trump ahead of this weekend's Georgia GOP convention. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. After more than 14 hours of public comment, overwhelmingly against Atlanta's proposed public safety center, the city council voted 11 to 4 early Tuesday morning to approve a funding package for the complex. It was a debate that at times got emotional, angry, and even tearful. In the end, it ended exactly how longtime observers of city politics expected, with a clear majority of city council members supporting the idea. Riley Bunch, our city hall reporter, was in there, I think I'd face to say the entire 14 hours, Riley. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was there since 10 a.m. that day. There were people there long before me, though, so we were all in it together. So 14 hours. What were your takeaways? What did you learn? Uh, What was surprising to you after an epic day of covering one of the most momentous debates in recent city hall history? Yeah, it was a marathon, and I reasonably slept in a little bit this morning, so I haven't really gotten a chance to actually sit down and think about it, so I'm really glad that we're kind of working through this together. But just to describe the scene, you know, I showed up to City Hall around 10 a.m., and there were already tons of people, I would say already almost 100 people, waiting in the atrium. Um, It was very, very organized. As soon as they opened the public comment line, leaders were saying, okay, these are the people that we want in the front, the people with direct impact stories, you know, people from marginalized communities. Um, And then once they got in that line, once public comment to sign up opened, it was hundreds of people lined up. I mean, 
People have seen the pictures. It's all through the hallways. It's down the stairs. It's out the door. We hit maximum capacity of City Hall, actually, and they had to start with security letting one person in as one person came out. So that was just the scene ahead of the council meeting, right? And from the early, early beginning, we could tell that Council Woods is not going to have a hold on this meeting, right? It was Mm -hmm. kind of shouting chaos from the audience to begin with. Um, A lot of people were upset when the public comment closed, and that led council members to extend comment even after the initial list of some 350 people, right? Um, And throughout the whole 14 hours, it's hard to sum up in a whole, but it's, it was a roller coaster, man. I mean, you know, there were moments where people were crying. There were more moments where people were shouting at specific council members. There, Liliana Bakhtiari came at one point to the crowd during recess, trying to calm them down, saying that if you guys don't, you know, listen, then we're going to have to move to a committee room. It was, and she was a no vote, right? So she was someone who was agreeing with many, many of these, these, uh, these opponents. Absolutely. She took a real leadership role during that meeting because she has been the most outspoken opponent of the training center and worked with a lot of the organizers in her past as an activist. Um, So she was really instrumental in trying to calm kind of the crowd. Riley, seeing the video, seeing your dispatches, um, and by the way, you know, I wake up um, a little bit after three every morning to start the jolt. and I woke up this morning and opened up Twitter, and there you were still at the city council meeting. This is just not the kind of activism or protest that we almost ever see here in any venue. The closest thing I can compare that kind of energy to was when um, the Georgia General Assembly voted through the changes to um, voting laws in 2021. It kind of had that level of intensity. And I'm sure there have obviously been other things in the less recent past. But give our listeners a sense of who the protesters seem to be. We've heard a lot about, quote, outside agitators. That label really bothered a number of the protesters. But it also seems organized. It seems like people are coordinating and know when to be somewhere and where to be. Tell us about who it is bringing these protests. Well, I think we've talked about this last time I was on the podcast. One of the most impressive things about this movement in particular is the diversity of people, the diversity of reasons why they're opposed to the center. You know, you have the environmental activists, that you have the other um, side where fears of police militarization, right, about this surrounding the center. You have residents that just don't want it in their backyard. You know, and it's just all of these people have come together on the May 15th meeting and were able to come together again this week and, you know, support each other. And although they may all have different reasons that they don't want it, they all had very, very similar um, threads, right? You know, Atlanta's civil rights history is why they're all showing up because we have a long legacy of fighting for that. You know, um, the wanting to be heard and feeling like they're not being heard because they have turned out so many times. Um, And I want you guys to listen to this because inside the chamber, there were people giving public comment and there were so many others had to sit outside and people had camped out in the atrium and were watching a little screen, kind of like the football, like the Super Bowl. They were just cheering along, cheering all the speakers that were coming up to the podium, all hundreds of them. Enchanting, too. What was interesting to me was that the public hearing session became almost a forum for venting about all things 
uh, all the challenges Atlanta faces. I mean, most of it focused on fears of militarization of the police and criminal justice policies and destruction of forest land. But we also heard from speakers who were upset with Governor Kemp. They had issues with other facets of city and state policies. And some even blasted Senators Ossoff and Warnock for not opposing the deal. A reminder that this really has divided leading Democrats. Here's Marcus Coleman, an organizer. And a man that stood shoulder to shoulder with him, Warnock, I can't even find him to speak on prison industrial conversation. So, Riley, this is something that the Democrats will have to contend with because obviously Mayor Dickens is one of the most prominent Democrats in Georgia. Uh, a number of the city council members who voted for this are Democratic leaders in their communities or in, in the city. Um, and we've seen we've seen it. most Democrats kind of t- tiptoe a line. Most of them haven't said anything about this at all. Um, and some have expressed grave concerns. But most trying to navigate this really uh, treacherous balance between public safety, knowing that this could come up against them in 2024, uh, as well as, you know, hearing the concerns from many of these opponents as well. Absolutely. And a lot of these organizers and grassroots activists, they campaigned with these local people, right? They know them. They, they're their constituents. And I think that brings them even closer to this issue. Um, they are expecting the democratic policies, democratic ideals to be upheld. And this is something that they felt like wasn't right? Um, Whether or not this will last into the next two years, I think that this is definitely a memory that will be in people's minds and something that Mayor Dickens is going to have to definitely grapple with when he's running again, right? Um, So this is something that they're on the local level, you have to face your constituents when you're on the in the grocery store and you see them and they ask you why you voted whatever way. And they're also making calls up to the federal level as well. Riley, let's talk about the mayor's role in this, um, particularly this week. Um, where was he? Was he there in the room? Was Did he seem responsive to people? What has been his body language over the last several days as this vote was looming? And uh, was he in touch with council members? Do you know? Was he whip, does he whip votes at all? How does he, what's been his role here? Well, he's been laying pretty low. I would say, um, you know, even at the AJC, as we're doing our reporting, getting answers from the mayor's office, going back and forth quite a number of times. Um, I do not suspect he was in the building for that vote because of security concerns. You know, they shut down in-person services that day. They increased security measures for people coming in. And there was a large security presence that, you know, grew throughout the day, bomb sniffing dogs and things like that. Um, But council members, They said that they were in communication with the Dickens administration, maybe not sure if it was Dickens himself, but especially the CFO um, over the funding issues, the big funding questions. You know, why is this dollar sign seem like so much more than it's been purported over the last two years? So the Dickens administration was absolutely, you know, whipping votes um, beforehand because there were a lot of unanswered questions and council members were uncomfortable. Uh, Riley, what was striking to me, too, is that we didn't hear much from supporters in all those 14 hours plus of testimony, of of comments. I think you guys reported maybe four in in all that only spanned a couple minutes compared to hours and hours and hours of opposition. In particular, things got really dicey involving Councilman Michael Julian Bond, who is one of the supporters. Let's hear from him. My position has not changed. I'm sensitive to what I'm hearing today. We're obligated to do something. So even though this is an extreme show of opposition, our obligation still remains. Riley, you reported things got so hairy that every time he spoke in mass, 
the attendees, the opponents uh, who were in City Hall stood up and turned their backs on him. Yeah, and it, it lasted hours, right? I mean, they weren't standing, turning their backs for hours, but this reaction to him speaking lasted a really long time. And I think this goes back to the thread we talked about early um, on is the entanglement of Atlanta's civil rights history with what this facility stands for to people, right? What this facility represents nationally. Um, Council member Bond has like a very big legacy. It, his family, um, civil rights activists, and people were upset about that. But just the interactions between the people and the council members was, was something I'd never really seen before on such an intimate and connected level, right? We're not really seeing council members respond in this way um, directly to people speaking unless they're called out by name, they're allowed to. But it was just such a, a close debate between politicians and their constituents. Riley, do they have a sense that there is silent support for this training center for people who have seen this play out it is obviously kind of 90 10 in terms of opposition support when it comes to the speakers probably even much more out of whack than that do you have a sense that people are hearing from their constituents that yes we want this training center we don't feel safe what's driving their commitment to moving this forward I think that's absolutely a part of it. You know, I've heard from many council members that their districts are split, so they don't really know which way to vote or and they really, really battled which way to vote. And that is one thing that the opposition has been really, really good at, right? Bringing out massive numbers to show and give a statement about the level of opposition. And that's not something that the side that supports it has done, right? We're, we're not hearing from people who support it. The um, politicians and leaders, they might be hearing from people support it, but we're not. The public isn't. Um, so there is absolutely that silent umbrella of support that has a lot to do with, you know, our inability or our struggles to address violent crime in the city. Riley, there's been this narrative of outside agitators that many of the opponents don't come from the city itself or even Metro Atlanta. And we know a number of the those who were charged with crimes related to uh, the public safety protests are not from Atlanta. But the vast majority of speakers, it seemed, I didn't count the entire time, but I only watched five hours or so of it. You watched all 14, but um, a lot, many of them identify where they lived in the city, mentioned in some cases who their council members were. This was an attempt by them to say, this is a local movement. This is not some astroturf movement driven by out-of-state interests. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that people that have shown up to city council have been trying to reiterate over and over again, because we did see in the early arrests for some of the violent protests, a lot of those people were from out of state, right? Um, so it, it turned into this narrative that people that were against a training center did not live and weren't connected to Atlanta. And that's another reason opponents showed up in mass to push back against that. They wanted people to know, you know, it's not just people out of state, like, I don't want this in my backyard. Um, and I think another thing to point to this is also the recent arrests um, that came right before the council meeting. That was of three, um, two very local, one from Savannah organizers that were key pillars of this movement, key pillars of this organizing community. And that really drove people out as well. Riley, talk for a little bit about the role of the state government in all this, because it is a multi-jurisdictional situation where it was Georgia state troopers who were policing and then eventually shot 
the protester who uh, who died, and it has been Attorney General Chris Carr who led the investigation into the potential money laundering, and then um, the GBI who moved the charges, but then it had to be the APD who actually executed the warrant, um, which the Dickens administration said they didn't even really know it was happening until the minute it was happening. And so it seems like there's been a kind of a, a lot of cooks in the kitchen on the side for the uh, safety center, not to mention the police foundation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's created murkiness from the start, right? You pointed out the um, clearing operation where the environmental activist was fatally shot by police and APD had body cameras, but Georgia State Patrol did not, right? So then APD feels this weight of having to release their body camera footage because we don't have any other body camera footage, you know, this higher responsibility. Um, And then you question, you know, how much conversation is going on between Governor Kemp and Mayor Dickens on these issues? You know, we had the... um, after the raid, Governor Kemp released a statement, but Mayor Dickens, not so quick, you know, was very quiet on it. You wonder what kind of talks did people know? Was this communication? It just, there's a criticism of law enforcement overall that different agencies don't have the same standards and don't work together in the same ways. And I think this is really playing out and impacting the narrative. We don't really know what exactly happened because we have all information coming from these different agencies. So, Riley, let's talk about what's next because there are supporters, they might not say this out loud, but there are supporters who see the outcome of Tuesday morning's vote as a triumph of the establishment because the vote two years ago, the city council vote that was hours of debate, was 10-4. And after all this outrage, protest, attention, uh, and in the tragic death of, of one of the protesters, the majority has actually grown to 11 to 4. And now, you know, one of the provisions of this deal was for two members of the city council to join, essentially join the the Atlanta Police Foundation. So you can make the argument that's even tying them closer together with the police foundation. Meanwhile, we have opponents who are vowing that it still will never be built. I will point out, though, Greg, we had one member absent in 2021 for that vote, which would make up for the differential. But I feel like a lot of especially the new council members, they are struggling because they have inherited this project. Right. This is something that was passed under the Bottoms administration and um it was really led back then. We don't really, and as our reporting on the funding's coming out, we don't really know what details of the plan has been told at different times to different people. So they've taken it on themselves to try to make this project better. They did offer a number of amendments during before the vote, um, the final funding vote, you know, making requirements for use of green space and training curriculum and things like that. And they did offer also and pass that resolution to request, I will emphasize request the Atlanta Police Foundation put two council members on their board of trustees. So they're trying to take steps to kind of quell and squash some of the concerns and actually, you know, recognize that there are issues with this project. But it's kind of where do we go from here once it's gotten so out of hand? And Riley, in terms of the politics of all of this, we did see the two senators, Georgia's two Democratic senators, come out with real concerns, particularly about how the police raid was conducted on the protesters. And um, but Mayor Dickens 
sticking like glue to moving this forward. He put out a statement after the council passed the funding and said that this center will help Atlanta lead the way on police reform and um, kind of 21st century policing that is combined with restorative justice. And um, it just seems like he's still, and and by the way, the, the statement came out quite a bit after the vote. Where do you think Dickens goes with this from here? At this point, he's moving forward. He says he's moving forward. He said that for so long. Hmm. I think he is trying to take steps to um, simmer the narrative, right, to address some concerns. He has his task force, which um, we will hear recommendations from in August, hopefully, and see if some of those have been implemented. Um, but at this point, he's moving forward. You know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And um, we'll just see if the response and the opposition continues, if it gets worse as buildings start to get constructed, um, and what happens when this thing is actually built. Yeah, and look, and also beyond Dickens, will there be political payback for the 11 supporters of this project? And frankly, for the four no votes, you know, will the establishment types who back the project go after the four no votes? How fired up will the Atlanta residents who packed City Hall overnight, you know, waited hours and hours to speak? Will this still be front and center in 2025 when there is another mayor election? Well, this has been so defining for the Dickens administration, you know, this is not an issue he wanted to deal with in this part of his term. There were mm-hmm. so many other things he wanted to focus on. Um, and I think that for our federal politicians, our state, some of our state politicians, they're tiptoeing around it. You know, no one wants to touch this for good reason. And that will have impacts in the long run for them. Riley, thank you so much for joining us after a marathon of your own 14 hours plus, And then, of course, hours of reporting and writing after the vote. Thank you so much for joining us on Politically Georgia podcast. Thank you, guys. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. We're back to Politically Georgia with Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy. We are two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. You get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Okay, Patricia, let's talk about the other big story of the week. We're just a few days away from the Georgia GOP convention. 
It will be the first return trip from former President Donald Trump to Georgia since he announced his comeback bid. There will also be a, a host of pro-Trump officials who are speaking there and a couple of the presidential candidates, uh, including Asa Hutchinson and Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, but really, the, the headliner is Donald Trump. And the other big story, of course, is the fact that Mike Pence, who is planning to go and speak at the convention, decided he's opted out. Instead, he'll be in New Hampshire. He is launching his presidential campaign a few days earlier, and he'll be in New Hampshire trolling for votes. Uh, but he's not only is he probably better served going to New Hampshire, but he because he was very likely to be booed, uh, heartily booed by these pro-Trump delegates. So he avoided some bad optics. For sure. And I spoke with uh, some Republicans today who said the state party had gotten a lot of feedback from delegates asking why is Mike Pence on this program? He is somebody who, as you said, would definitely have gotten booed just as Brian Kemp did last year. But he does not have kind of the incentive that Kemp had last year to be in that room. And then obviously, along with Mike Pence, who's not going to be at the convention, of course, Governor Brian Kemp won't be there. John King won't be there. Attorney General Chris Carr will not be there. Uh, The only statewide official who will be there is Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, who was endorsed by Donald Trump. So it's really taken on the flavor of instead of a GOP convention for the party, it really has taken on the flavor of a Donald Trump rally, essentially. And that is the existential problem of the Georgia GOP and the entire GOP, really, is are we more than just a party of Donald Trump? This particular apparatus looks like it's really just a party for Donald Trump and Donald Trump supporters when you look at this um, buffet that they're serving. But of course, the party in the state is much more than that. But it's that the party apparatus itself, um, this particular group has narrowed its focus so much that They have had the most important Republicans in the state say they're not coming because they don't have to. And there's another important subplot, and that is Governor Kemp and Donald Trump, because the governor took pains to avoid saying anything negative about Trump the last three or four years, right? Even as Donald Trump was attacking him on the campaign trail, even as he backed David Perdue to try to oust him in last year's primary, even as Donald Trump blamed Kemp for his, his defeat, you name it. Uh, Kemp kind of was tight-lipped, you know, uh, privately he'd see, right? Privately he was very upset, but in public he did not say a bad word. He didn't say anything negative about Donald Trump. The closest he came was speeches where he said voters need to look beyond Donald Trump. They need to look beyond 2020. Um, at his, uh, at his uh, re-election victory, he had a subtle jab, a veiled jab at Donald Trump, but it wasn't, it wasn't overt. Well, that has changed because after Trump congratulated North Korea's despotic leader for the communist nation's admission into the World Health Organization's executive board. Governor Kemp had a viral tweet where he said, quote, taking our country back from Joe Biden does not start with congratulating North Korea's murderous dictator. Pretty soon we saw Ron DeSantis and other presidential candidates echoing that framework. So Patricia, my question for you is, do you think this is a preview of things to come from Governor Kemp? Do you think he's going to get a little a sharper elbowed when it comes to Donald Trump? I do think it's a preview of what's to come with Brian Kemp, because I think what I've come to learn about Governor Kemp, or at least assume about the governor when I'm watching him, is he rarely takes a step without being a reason for doing it or a reason for specifically 
not doing it. So he is not the kind of politician who does something because it makes him feel better. Like, oh boy, I'm mad about this. I'm going to tweet about it. That is not how uh, Brian Kemp operates. So for him to make a specific effort to get onto social media, to pluck out this one particular tweet or social media post from Donald Trump about foreign policy, not domestic policy, about something that is really well within the mainstream and most of the extreme of the Republican Party to let's all agree that Kim Jong-un is not somebody that we are going to congratulate as Americans. Um, That's the type of thing where uh, Kemp is now edging toward criticizing Trump and then directly criticizing Trump. Um, I would assume that the next steps he takes continue to be on foreign policy. I don't know that we'll see him go after Trump on a domestic issue that is squarely within the base of something that they like to see. Um, But I think unless it's the election. But even then, I think, you know, Kemp is so strategic. He's making these choices very deliberately. So this was not something that was unconsidered. And I think that it is something that starts to move him in a direction as his next chapter looms, either as a Senate candidate in 26 or a potential VP candidate. Um, He's inching closer toward that kind of destiny for himself Mm -hmm. and needs to lay the groundwork for that. And these are the kind of micro moves that do that for him. And let's be honest, it's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> I, mean, Trump, I mean, well, that's the right way to say Trump it. Is, Trump, I mean, it's an easy way to, it's an easy, it's an easy opening. I mean, Trump is yeah, ain't literally, rocket science. yeah, he's literally praising one of the U.S.'s strategic enemies, right? A guy who's trying to develop nuclear weapons that they can fire to Japan and South Korea and who knows where. Um, so it was, it was, uh, it was a, quite the opening. But look, it also pretty much guarantees that Donald Trump will take more shots at Governor Kemp this weekend. We already thought he would, but this probably revved him up if he if he saw it. I'm assuming he did, uh, but this probably revved him up. So he might be uh, more eager to lace into Georgia's governor, who, of course, is boycotting the convention when he comes back to town this weekend. Yeah, but, you know, Kemp does it from a position of strength on this on this uh, calculus because he won his GOP primary against Donald Trump's handpicked opponent um, by more than 50 points. There's really very little that he needs to fear from Donald Trump or Donald Trump supporters because Kemp has really developed his own relationship with Georgia voters and his own relationship with uh, Republicans in the state and even some crossover voters. So um, when he's making these decisions, what's in it for me, there's a much bigger upside to Kemp tweeting about uh, Donald Trump in this particular vein than there is any kind of downside. And as we've said before, this is going to be a convention that is overwhelmingly pro-Trump. From what we understand, we'll see if that if, if our assumptions are not valid. But uh, Trump's allies have won a lot of key spots in the Georgia GOP, delegate spots, leadership spots. It's chaired by David Shaver, who our colleague Shannon McCaffrey wrote in a big profile, might have been Donald Trump's biggest ally, political ally in the state of Georgia over the last campaign. So another factor in all this is that even as so many of these delegates have already chosen sides, um, most leading Georgia Republican officials have not. One of the only exceptions is Rich McCormick, the new House member who has signed on with Ron DeSantis. But Patricia, you look up and down the party line, very few endorsements, especially very few non-Trump endorsements uh, so far in the Georgia world. 
Yeah, for sure. I think people are keeping their powder dry. It There is a big upside to waiting to endorse until kind of just the right time when people are paying attention, when you have maximum leverage, when it means a lot to the candidate, but still means something to voters. So I think timing of these endorsements is really important. But I also think it's really instructive that uh, while we have seen a handful of Georgians come out and endorse Trump. It certainly has not been a galloping stampede. And Governor Kemp obviously is not going to be endorsing Donald Trump ahead of the primary. But then the question is, what do they do about Donald Trump if he becomes the nominee? And many of them have said, "Mm, oops, even if I don't support Donald Trump, I would support the Republican nominee. That's when you kind of get into a dicier situation. But for now, it looks like Georgians are really waiting to see who else is out there who looks strong and how is Trump looking in the meantime? That is a very valid question. What does what Brian Kemp, what does Chris Carr, what does Brad Raffensperger do if Trump is the nominee? Do they say they're still going to vote for the Republican ticket? And they, and they talk about issues and they talk about other contenders and legislative candidates, that kind of thing, and ignore Trump? Or do they go out there and be a surrogate for Trump? I don't think it'll be the latter, but, but we'll have plenty of time to discuss that. We'll also have a lot more coverage, Georgia GOP convention and all things politics coming up on Friday's episode. One more thing for Friday's episode, of course, we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now dial into. And we have a new number, the Politically Georgia Podcast Hotline, which you can call anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer that question right here. That new number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We cannot wait to hear from you. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We also release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.